Hello, my name is Michael Albert, and I am the host of the podcast titled Revolution Z. This is our 64th episode, and it will focus on the issue of education now and in a participatory socialist society. Part of education is intrinsic to the task of accruing knowledge and skill, and is best oriented to the individual. To think about education from this angle, we examine the process of conveying information and skills and developing talents in each student. We ask, what is the best way to educate students given the exigencies of what is taught, the attributes that students have, and the abilities that teachers offer? But part of education is also contextual and social. To think about education from this angle, we examine the process of transferring information and skills and developing talents from the point of view of society's needs. We ask, what is the best way to educate students consistent with accomplishing what society seeks? The polarity between enforcing society's agenda and nurturing the freedom and fulfillment of the individual is captured by the pedagogic revolutionary Paulo Freire when he writes, quote, There is no such thing as a neutral educational process. Education either functions as an instrument which is used to facilitate the integration of the younger generation into the logic of the present system and bring about conformity to it, or it becomes the practice of freedom, the means by which men and women deal critically and creatively with the reality and discover how to participate in the transformation of their world. Freire is right about education today, but in a better future, ideally society's interests will be the same as the interests of each new generation of students. That's how the contradiction or the conflict is resolved in a better world. The former, education for society's interest, will not limit the latter, education for the next generation of students, if the two are in accord. In that case, we will have a clear agenda. If that isn't accomplished, we will have to choose between serving students' needs and capacities and serving society's dictates. Nowadays, we live in societies that have capitalist economies with private ownership of productive assets, corporate divisions of labor, authoritarian decision-making, and markets for allocation. Because of these institutions, capitalism has huge disparities in wealth and income. About 2% of the population, called capitalists, own most of the productive property and accrue profits from it. What I call the coordinator class of empowered lawyers, doctors, engineers, managers, and other empowered employees comprises about 20% of the population and largely monopolizes empowering tasks and the daily levers of control over their own and over other people's economic lives. Members of the coordinator class enjoy high incomes, great personal and group influence over economic outcomes, and great status albeit they exist below owners, capitalists above. In contrast, the bottom 80% of producers do largely rote work, take orders from the coordinators above, barely influence economic outcomes, and receive lower income. This is the working class. This threefold class division is brought into being by the key institutions of capitalism. First, private ownership of productive property demarcates the dominant capitalist class. They're the ones who own the productive property. Markets structurally impose on owners a need to accumulate profits. The corporate decision-making structure gives owners their ultimate power over property. Second, the low number of owners and the large requirements of control over the people doing the work propel the creation of an intermediate coordinator class. Owners can't oversee their wide-reaching assets without assistance. The corporate division of labor 
defines the coordinator class as those monopolizing empowering work and dominating daily decision-making. The requisites of legitimating control by managers and other coordinator class members ensures that this class monopolizes advanced training, skills, and knowledge, as well as the confidence that accompany these. Third, all these features ensure that the largest portion of citizens will be left with little or no individual bargaining power, having to work for low wages at rote, tedious, and overwhelmingly obedient jobs. These features will vary in the suffering they impose, as well as in the options they permit, depending on the relative bargaining power of the three classes. But in every instance of capitalism, the broad scaffolding of the economy's defining institutions will be as indicated. So, we can sensibly ask, what are the implications of all of this for education? If an economy has 2% of its members ruling its outcomes through their ownership of property, 18 to 20% administering and defining economic outcomes due to monopolizing empowering circumstances, and 80% obeying due to doing only rote tasks, then each year's new recruits to the economy arriving from the educational system must be prepared to occupy their designated slots in one of these three classes. Recruits must be prepared to exercise assigned functions, pay attention to designated responsibilities, and ignore distractions. This is true for those who will rule, for those who will have great but less than ruling power, and for those who will overwhelmingly obey. A useful word for all this educational preparation is tracking. Each new generation is divided into segments, and each segment is tracked into its appropriate destination. The educational system processes, or tries to process, the incoming population so that about 80% lose any inclination to affect events. Their confidence is nearly obliterated. Their knowledge is kept minimal and narrow. The main skills they learn are to obey and to endure boredom. As Bertrand Russell often joked, people are born ignorant, not stupid. They are made stupid by education. Or, as John Lennon put it, as soon as you're born, they make you feel small. Another 20% are tracked to expect to have a say over their own and over other people's lives. They become more confident and enjoy a monopoly on various skills and insights. The upper reaches of this privileged group learn how to have dinner with one another and to otherwise comport themselves in accord with their lofty, lofty station at the major societal finishing schools such as Harvard and Oxford. They become ignorant of and oblivious to social relations that run contrary to their advantages and callings. The point is simple. If a society requires its population to have three broad patterns of hopes, expectations, and capacities, its educational system will provide precisely these differentiated outcomes. In that tracking context, any effort to look at education as a system by means of which each individual can maximally develop their potentials and pursue their interests will either be mere rhetoric or will be limited by presuppositions that most people possess no serious potentials or interests. Of course, people, whether as students or as teachers, can try to attain better educational outcomes against the economy's needs, but this entails acting against the logic of capitalism. Regarding the largest part of the public, as the great satirist H.L. Mencken summarized, quote, The aim of public education is not to spread enlightenment at all. It is simply to reduce as many individuals as possible to the same safe level, to breed and train a standardized citizenry to put down dissent and originality. That is its aim in the United States, whatever the pretensions of politicians, pedagogues, and other such mountebanks, 
and that is the same everywhere else. Is there an alternative? Well, society's hierarchies always largely crown out pedagogy aimed at the development of each student's potentials and aspirations. Well, gains for students only arrive as a result of struggle against systemic dictates and be periodically obliterated by economic pressures whenever vigilance in their defense diminishes. When the Carnegie Commission on Education considered the state of U.S. education as part of a government effort to understand what went wrong in the 1960s, it decided that the problem was too much education. The population, the commission reported, expected to have too much say in society, too much income, too much job fulfillment, too much dignity and respect. And upon getting ready to enter the economy, many members of the population had, had their high expectations trashed, and as a result, they had rebelled. The solution, the commission reported, was to reduce the tendency of education to induce high expectations in too large a proportion of the population. It was necessary to cut back higher education and to make lower education more rote and mechanical, save for those who were destined to rule, of course. The result of this inclination has been a steady diminution of the quality and degree of education available for most citizens in the U.S., even more so than elsewhere in the world. If we look at education from the angle of the person to be educated, we may differ over issues of exact methodology, of course which is quite appropriate, as there is unlikely a universally optimal approach. I suspect, however, we would agree on broad aims. Students should be assisted to discover their capacities and potentials, to explore them, and to fulfill them while simultaneously becoming broadly confident and able to think, reason, argue, and assess in the ways needed to function effectively among socially aware and caring adults. Other people might formulate this mandate somewhat differently, but one thing is quite clear. For this type of education to happen, society must need this type of incoming adult. It must not want wage slaves who are obedient and passive, and elite coordinators who are callous and commanding. So to be compatible with worthy pedagogy, conceived from the angle of the student, an economy needs to call forth from each participant nothing less than the fullest utilization of their capacities and inclinations, whatever those capacities and inclinations may turn out to be. What kind of economy would do this? 80% of us are presently taught in schools to endure boredom and to take orders because that's what capitalism needs from its workers. Another 18% are made ambitious as well as callous to the conditions of those below and ignorant about their own callousness. At the very top, 2% are made cruel and greedy. Of course, it isn't perfectly cut and dried as portrayed, but this is the overall average picture. In a participatory society, education will again have to be compatible with society's broad-defining institutions, since that will always be true in every society. If the educational apparatus is churning out people who can't fit in the society, things will grind to a halt or erupt in a cataclysm. But in a society with a participatory economy, polity, kinship, and culture of the sorts that Revolution Z has summarized, society will want us to be as capable, creative, and productive as we can be, and to participate as full citizens. Participatory economics is a solidarity economy, a diversity economy, an equity economy, and a self-managing economy. It is a classless economy. In these respects, its educational system will be based on and generate solidarity, diversity, equity, and self-management, as well as rich and diverse capacities of comprehension and creativity. 
Everyone in a participatory society benefits from each of society's workers and consumers being as confident and educated as possible. Under capitalism, talk of desirable pedagogy may on the one hand mean pedagogy that is consistent with the desire to reproduce the hierarchies of society. In that case, it is more about control and tracking than it is about what most of us think of when we think about good education, edification, and fulfillment. On the other hand, pedagogy and capitalism could be about ed edification and fulfillment, but that would contradict the basic needs of the capitalist economy, because it would be trying to establish outcomes contrary to the market, private ownership, remuneration for property and power, and corporate divisions of labor. In capitalism, one only gets desirable education by contesting against undesirable economic pressures. With participatory economics, good education isn't something we win and then perpetually defend because the underlying institutions of society are at odds with it. Good education for the individual in participatory socialism is part and parcel of the logic of society's collective economic and social life. Are there implications for the actual structure and procedures of schooling and education implicit in the structures of a participatory society? I would guess that the answer is yes, not least of all, but also not confined to the fact that, of course, educational institutions would themselves be self-managing, interface with participatory planning, and incorporate balanced job complexes. There would not be some staff of schools and universities who only teach, some who only administrate, and some who only clean up. But the specific meaning of changes in methodology of training, learning, and sharing will no doubt emerge from the actual experience of teaching and learning in a new society, and will no doubt also have a multitude of shapes and forms. Maybe sometimes the familiar memorization approach to learning will make some sense. Other times, an approach that emphasizes doing and interacting with those who can already do through students learning from mentors will perhaps make more sense. No doubt lectures will play a role, and certainly reading and collective projects will play a role. Perhaps some kind of evaluative grading will be sensible. Without doubt, however, there must be standards. A good economy does not have people who are poorly equipped undertaking tasks they are unlikely to do well, whether it be flying passenger planes, composing music, building houses, driving trucks, or conducting cancer research. How much education will people get? How many years? What will be the balance between generalist preparation to be a full citizen and specialized training in a field of major pursuit? To what degree will resources go to raising the comprehension and capacity of less able students as compared to advancing students pursuing cutting-edge intellectual insights? To what degree will resources go to expanding comprehension and capacity in any form as compared to being allotted to other social ends? These choices and countless others are not a matter of prior determination. They are what free people and context of free institutions will decide for themselves in a better future. The point here is that save for a minority, capitalism annihilates aspirations for worthy education. In contrast, participatory socialism will actualize educational aspirations for all. That said, I would just like to remind you that the podcast Revolution Z does need some help. It would be really appreciated and really helpful if people would take a moment to visit our Patreon page, P-A-T-R-E-O-N slash Revolution Z, where you can become what's called a patron of the podcast uh, by helping us out. 
that would be uh, a good thing to do if you if you like the direction in which this podcast is going. And about that direction, uh, there's going to be a, a, a new feature soon. I'm going to add podcast episodes that answer questions put by people who I come into contact with in response to the other episodes of the podcast. In other words, there'll be collections of questions that are spurred by or inspired by uh, listening to various episodes and that further explore their points, their issues, etc. The tendency of these will be to be far more personal, I think, far more based upon personal experiences. Indeed, people uh, seem to have asked a lot of questions so far uh, directly about myself, uh, which I will try to answer. Indeed, I'll try to answer everything that I collect. So, for now, this is Michael Albert signing off for the podcast Revolution Z. It would be greatly appreciated and immensely helpful if people would take a moment to visit... What the hell is going on?